a familiar face, and uh, we always enjoy having him here to, to speak with us, Greg Howe. And he works with college students, and he oversees a number of um, staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship who are on campus day by day, and he oversees those staff in the New York area. And I, I think that's all that I'm going to say. I'm going to turn it over to him and uh, as he opens Luke 24 or so with us. Let me pray for you, though, Greg. God, I thank you again for this wonderful morning, and I pray that you would just uh, fill Greg with your spirit and now allow him to communicate what you've put on his heart clearly, and I pray that we would hear your word loud and clear as Greg speaks to us. Amen. Thanks. Good morning. Since it's Easter, it seems appropriate and okay for me to admit this terrible addiction that I have. I first discovered it when I was, um, I'd finished law school and I was at home. My only excuse for indulging in it was it was very, very late at night. I was working full-time as a corporate attorney and volunteering with InterVarsity at the time. And I got home and I noticed my roommate was watching TV. And we both got so sucked in that we kept looking at each other like, I can't believe we're actually watching this together, but we were. It was a rerun of an Oprah makeover show. <laughs> it was me, my 27-year-old graduate student in math, roommate, and I glued to the set as Oprah made over woman after woman, person after person, from dull, drab, and filmed under really poor lighting conditions to glamorous, beautiful, and changed. And as my wife will quickly tell you, I'm somewhat obsessed by these kind of programs. And I'm embarrassed to admit it because I sort of pride myself on being a reasonably thoughtful person. I like to read interesting books. I enjoy the New York Times. I listen to NPR for the love of God. But these makeover shows just completely obsess me. It doesn't even have to be like a physical makeover show, though what not to wear is often really appealing to me, especially late in the evenings. Make over a house, make over a dish of food, make over your garden, I can be hooked in. I think it has something to do with be working with college students in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It's not that I'm working with really young people whose clothes seem to fit very well and who seem to have it all put together because God knows that's not the students I seem to work with. Instead, it's the opportunity to see transformation in front of me all the time. I remember talking to a friend of mine when I was working with InterVarsity. She was another lawyer, and she said during one of our conversations, you know, what happened to you this week? And so I began to tell her story after story of students who were encountering Jesus for the first time and giving their lives to him, students wrestling with some of the hardest issues of their life, childhood sexual abuse, current um, dysfunctional relationships, and how Jesus was offering hope. And she said, wow, you see God at work more in a single day than I do in an entire month. And there was something about that I thought, that's exactly why I do this job. I love watching that happen. People being changed, things being made new, creativity bursting forth. And I think it explains this total addiction I have to those makeover shows because unlike college students who can take weeks or months or even years to get themselves right with Jesus, in between 30 minutes and an hour, everything is done. <laughs> Actually, even less once you take out all the commercial time. But the commercials are addicting, too, because with one spritz of that product, with one burst of that new pro thing, my life can be better and new. 
You understand that, don't you? I mean, it's what drives every Disney movie, isn't it? Poor Cinderella, unloved by a stepmother, having to do menial chores like housework, heaven forfend, all of a sudden is transformed into a beautiful princess who gets everything that she wants. The same goes for Snow White or Sleeping Beauty after a really long, restful nap. Ah, Prince Charming finally comes. Beauty and the Beast, which my more militantly feminist friends used to talk about as some sort of, um, you know, woman's liberation movie because here she was breaking free from the confines of what she called her little provincial life, escapes and becomes everything that she wants to be. And what does she get? She gets the beautiful prince, all the books she could possibly read, a fantastic castle to boot and servants. Yeah, that sounded really liberated to me. It happens in every Oprah episode we read. It's what drives subscriptions to Reader's Digest and Guidepost. For men, right, this is what makes this old house vaguely intriguing, if even so, slightly impossible. With just a little elbow grease, a little imagination, and evidently all the free time in the world, you too can make your house beautiful and transformed. It's what makes Martha Stewart the equivalent, as one of my friends said, of her own private stash of makeover transformational porn. She hid it in the back of her house. She would flip through it quietly every week and think, one day my house could look like that. <laughs> we all, I think, buried deep within us, don't we have this incredible desire to see things become different, to see things changed, to believe that something could so intervene into our lives that everything could be made new. And too often, I think, we're satisfied with it happening in 30 minutes or 45 minutes. But as you begin to look at the Easter story, you realize that God has already decisively begun a process of transformation that isn't just spiritual but cosmic in its scope. Not just vertical but horizontal in its effects and life-changing in the extreme. Look again at Luke 24, which we had read for us earlier today. I haven't thought about this much until the last year or two, but each one of the um, gospel writers points out very clearly the same thing as they begin to tell the story of the resurrection. On the first day of the week, this resurrection occurs. On the first day of the week, when beginnings are new. Reminding us a lot, I think, of Genesis 1. On the first day of the week, when God creates out of nothing, brings order out of emptiness. On the first day of the week, God created. And on the first day of the week, God begins the process of recreation. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke certainly do this, but John takes it even um, deeper because he's very intentionally in the structure of his gospel reminding us just as in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So on the first day, at the beginning of a new week of new creation, the Word made flesh is resurrected. And as N.T. Wright points out, it's probably no error that when Mary Magdalene first encounters Jesus there at the tomb, he mis she mistakes him for a gardener. Somebody restarting the process of renewing, redeeming and stewarding the creation that God originally intended humanity to have. 
so Easter breaks forth on a new day in a new week as God begins a new process of creation. Because, you know, on the sixth day, God's labors ended, and on the sixth day of the week, Jesus dies and says, it is finished. On the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath begins. Jesus rests in his tomb. And breaking forth on a new day in a new week, Jesus comes again. And what do you see when the new day begins? You see a new day has begun for a world that's been very much broken by sin. Part of what we celebrate at Easter is a bodily resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't merely the spirit of Jesus that's restored and returned to the world so that he can dwell in our hearts and float about in some sort of ambiguous spiritual way. His body is returned to life. This is clearly what the apostles and the women weren't expecting. This isn't the plan that they understood, even though Jesus spoke about it so consistently and so regularly. This took them by surprise. The women went not thinking, we're going to go to the tomb, the Spirit's going to appear, and lo and behold, we'll have this deeper experience of Jesus. They go to the tomb with spices, ready to anoint the body of the dead. Luke is very clear to tell us. And when they arrive, they're told by the angels, why do you look for the living among the dead. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And if to underline this point, Luke has Peter running to the grave after the women come back with the news that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And there he finds not this dead body with Jesus' spirit hovering over it, But instead, empty grave clothes. Something has happened. Something has changed. The body has been brought to life. This is not what the apostles and the women had expected. There's no sense if you've been paying attention during this Holy Week that by the time they get to the cross, the apostles are all standing there watching Jesus die saying, it's okay, he'll be back in three days. (laughs) It's just kind of a momentary detour from what he was planning. We'll be fine. They're shocked. They're disturbed. They're terrified. They're heartbroken. There was real death. And then in contrast on Easter morning, real life. Their expectation, like any good Jew of the day, was that there would be a resurrection from the dead at the very end of time. When God would vindicate all who had been oppressed, as Dick was reminding us last week, when God would answer the cry of everyone who's cried out for injustice, he would bring back from the dead all who had been oppressed, all who had been faithful to him, and judge the wicked. But Jesus' resurrection was unusual, unexpected. Instead of the mass of the dead being resurrected, he was resurrected alone, and the last days have been brought forward into the present. God's process of vindicating the oppressed, helping those in need, raising up those who are low, is not pressed off sometime into the future, but very much into the present. The tomb is empty, the angels have testified to what has happened, and the grave clothes are abandoned. Body and spirit, Jesus is resurrected. And therefore, one of the implications for us is that the work of redemption is both spiritual and physical. It's exactly what God points to at the very end of Scripture in Revelation 21. He declares at the end, I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. 
The substance of what all the miracles in the Gospels are pointing to is that God is re-entering history, meeting people at their deepest place of physical, spiritual, and emotional brokenness, and making new those things which are old, bringing wholeness to those things that are broken, straightening out those things that are twisted. Part of the implication for us is that our world and our bodies matter to God. This shouldn't surprise us, right? In the process of announcing our salvation, he didn't speak as a disembodied spirit from on high, just announcing good news, but he took on flesh, entered our world, experienced our pain and our lostness, and then showed us how to live, how to worship, how to be obedient, and through Jesus' death and resurrection, how to be transformed. We have an embodied hope for our future with the Lord. Our future isn't some disembodied spiritual worship service where we flit about on clouds with wings, playing golden harps. Amusing for a while, I suppose, though, being acrophobic, it actually terrifies me because I'm afraid of heights. But we proclaim in our basis of faith with all the creeds, we believe in the resurrection, (coughs) excuse me, the resurrected body and a new life. How should that affect the way that we live? I suspect that some of the ways it affects us are best described in literature and story. Most of you, I trust, are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that great story by C.S. Lewis where as the children first enter this mystical and magical world, the world is caught, frozen, trapped, embedded in ice. And when Aslan comes, that Christ figure that, Lewis builds into a story, he doesn't really save people from the frozen wasteland. Come away, there's this little door by the lamppost. It's great, there's an entire other world there. She'll never get there. Instead, as Aslan returns, spring returns. A summer thaw begins to break through the air. Life returns to the trees. The water begins to flow. The grass begins to go green. The flowers begin to bloom. The world is changed because of the coming of the Christ figure. Similarly, I want to suggest if the church lives out the Easter story, we begin to proclaim in word and deed that God cares about this creation because he entered it. He resurrected Jesus both physically and spiritually and demands that we begin to experience and press into the world now what he intends to complete at Jesus' second coming. It means that creation care isn't merely an economically appropriate thing or a politically correct thing. But inch by square inch as we take care of the creation that God gave us, we're redeeming those small parts of creation that also, as Paul points out in Romans 8, groans under the burden of sin, human exploitation, and said release it to the glory of God through good stewardship, turning that small patch of land that we may have that little impact we have into the environment, an act of worship. It means I want to suggest that we take art and beauty seriously. Because what's pleasing to the eyes and to the senses gives delight and glory to the God who gave us these eyes and senses and who enjoys it when we create, just as when he created at the very beginning. I think of um, a journal entry written by a woman who lived on the prairies of the Midwest in the 1870s 
It was captured by an author that I was reading, and the woman wrote about a quilt that she was making. I make it warm so my family won't freeze, and I make it beautiful so that my heart will not break. I think she captured something about how to live the resurrection. God cared, God invested, and God beautified and redeemed. I think it means that the brokenness and frailness of our own bodies are not something to be despised or cast off or trivialized. The illnesses that we face, the degeneration that we experience as we age, the frailty of the bodies that we inhabit and are, are not merely something that God invites us to cast off later in the future, but he dignifies by having incarnated himself as a human being and then resurrecting a body for Jesus himself. Which means the church can engage in practical ministries like health care and justice, not thinking that they're temporary or short-sighted or even momentary things that we do until God is done with the bodies that we have. But we engage them as part of our resurrection Easter conviction. God gave us the body, God will resurrect the body, and he will perfect the body in his own time. But small step by small step, incrementally by increment, we proclaim now in caring for the body what God intends to do by, at the very end of time through our bodies. What happens when a new day has broken in? It's not just that the world is being redeemed as it's broken by sin, but a new day has begun for humanity, which has been twisted by sin as well. Because as you read the resurrection accounts, what is remarkable is not just that Jesus Christ is alive and his body and his spirit united again live and work and are active in the world. <clears throat> what also strikes us, I think, is that it's a very unusual group of people he's chosen to witness about this. I suppose that's not too surprising. We could look around the room and notice that again. But each of the gospel accounts are united in one completely troubling, befuddling fact, if you were a Jew who lived at the time. The first observers of the resurrection and the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. You have to understand, at the time, women were held in disrepute. They were considered so unreliable, so flighty, so emotional. Their testimony was not admitted in court unless there was no other possible way you could have a witness. <clears throat> in fact, women were held in such low esteem often in the Jewish synagogue and religious uh, leaders of the time that a common prayer within 50 to 100 years of Jesus' own life was something like this. A man would stand at the synagogue and say, Dear Lord, the Almighty, thank you for, never, for not making me a Gentile, a dog, or a woman, roughly in that order. You'd be hard-pressed to imagine or to name a more unreliable group of witnesses to the resurrection than women at the time. Who, you couldn't even, um, there was no other group who you would be less eager to have testify to a new work of God than women unless maybe it was a group of shepherds or a group of, you know, wandering people, Gentiles from the East who practiced foreign religions, read the stars, and looked for signs. Even the apostles, when they hear these fellow disciples of theirs, 
describing the fact that Jesus was no longer in the grave, but he had bodily risen from the dead. Their word for it is, in the words of the NIV, they didn't believe the woman because the word seemed to them like nonsense. And the sense is, it was the kind of raving that super fevered people do, that kind of ranting and lack of coherence that you experience when you're terribly ill or sick. They didn't take them seriously at all. But you see, the work of resurrection and redemption isn't merely vertical, redeeming our relationship with God. It has horizontal implications as well. As a church, you've read through the scriptures enough and it's been preached through enough that I'm sure you've been struck by the weird series of reversals that you see throughout scripture. How rarely is it the eldest son who seems to be the one that God blesses, but it's the younger son? How infrequently it's the people of Israel who are faithful to Jesus or to the Lord, but often it's the prostitute Rahab, it's the Moabite woman named Ruth, it's the beauty queen turned trophy wife Esther who manages to save the day. How it's not the mighty empires of the Middle East, but a small insignificant tribe of people caught, caught, caught at the crossroads of history whom God seems to choose, seems to love, seems to bless, and seems to use his own purposes. The gospel accounts are unified and very clear. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection and to the resurrection. And Luke, in kind of an interesting way, makes that point very clear because at no point in Luke's narratives do you ever hear the angel say, go tell the disciples what Jesus, what's happened to Jesus Christ. Instead, the angel tells these women in Luke, don't you remember what you heard Jesus say? You too are disciples. You've listened to what he's taught, told you. You've heard what he's had to say. You should remember that. And the angel assumes that these women, like the men, were disciples as well and has no instructions to tell the disciples because they are or, the disciples are already being told. <clears throat> and then the women go and announce what they've known from what Jesus has said, from what they've seen, and from what they have heard. The implications for us are pretty dramatic as well. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, not only does God care about everything that we do, everything that we touch, and everything that we can see in an eternal, meaningful way, but God's also intent on redeeming the horizontal relationships of our lives as well as the vertical relationship that we have with him. Paul's clear about that in Ephesians. He reconciled each one of us to God so that we could be reconciled to one another. And so it's from that impetus, I suspect, the belief of what God was doing in redeeming the curse that affected both the land and also the relationships between men and women, between parent and child, between neighbor. That the New Testament begins to push the entire culture of the Mediterranean world into uncomfortable places. Believing that God was redeeming our horizontal relationships, Paul writes brashly, convincingly, terrifyingly, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, women and men to one another. What would have been surprising at the time was not the request that women submit to men. That would have just been assumed. What was stunning to the New Testament world was that men were to mutually submit to their wives. They were to love them as opposed to loving a mistress 
or a prostitute that they had on the side. What would have shocked people at Paul's time was not the request that children should um, honor and obey their parents, but that parents should anger their child as if a child's emotional life and emotional health was at all to be a concern or a value. It certainly was never the verse that was preached in a Chinese church that I grew up in, because it remains disturbing to us even still. It pushes us to think if enmity was part of what entered the world as a result of sin, how reconciliation has now entered the world because of Christ's death and his resurrection. About a year ago, I was... I was caught by an article on CNN.com. It's my, one of my primary news sources. It's my, I need a mental health break at work, and so I'm going to look, scan the headlines. And it was a report by Christiane Amapur reporting from Rwanda. And the headline was something like, can, can shopping at Macy's bring about reconciliation? Now, I'm sure the Macy's executives were thrilled by this, but what she was focusing on was a series of products sold at Macy's made by women in Rwanda. And what struck her about the project as she explored it much further was that there were these baskets, handmade baskets, being sold at Macy's, made by women at Rwanda. And as she explored the story at one village, she found a woman named Iphigenia. Iphigenia's family had been killed by the Hutus in Rwanda during the genocide. Iphigenia was also training her Tutsi neighbors how to make these baskets in order to have a livelihood. Iphigenia knew because she watched it happen, that these neighbors were actually directly responsible for her family's death. She said, I watched them hack apart my family with machetes and, and garden hose. I watched them take people from the village. Their neighbors, people we had lived together with for 40 years, forced them to dig a trench, lie down, and be buried alive in them. And now I'm teaching them to weave baskets so they can feed their families. And she talked about the process of why she did it. She said, it's because I'm a Christian. I didn't talk to my neighbors for four years after my husband died, but my neighbors have gone before the tribal court. They've acknowledged everything that they've done. They looked me in the eye and told me that they had killed my husband, and I knew it because I watched them do it. But how can I withhold from them livelihood, a hope for the future, an opportunity to feed their family and the families of others? They recognize me as a basket, a master basket weaver. I can't withhold that skill from my own people. And when CNN interviewed the man who had killed her husband, he said the same thing. I've had to confess my sin in front of the people whose families I killed and in front of the entire village. They've chosen to forgive me. So now I learn to make baskets to support my family and the family of all of those in our village. You see, a new day has begun for humanity because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. At the very first moments as the church encounters it, a great reversal is occurring. Those who are despised and low and oppressed are being raised up, dignified, and given value. And the church has wrestled with that ever since. On a more concrete level, it happens in ordinary practical things as we realize the importance of the physical world around us and the importance of relationships. There's a little kid named Mark Laurie who lives, <clears throat> I think, in the Midwest. He was in fourth grade and 
Mark had cancer. He was doing reasonably well with his cancer, but for all of us who've had friends with cancer, you know, beyond um, the fear of death and the reality of treatment comes, at least for a fourth-grade boy, the humiliation of losing your hair during chemotherapy. Because you can take a certain amount of indignity, pain, and suffering, I suppose, internally, but when you have to experience it publicly, it's quite another matter. Reminds me of what one mother said on NPR a couple of years ago. My children have reached the age where the only thing they're afraid of is public humiliation. So tentatively and with some fear, Mark went to his classroom the first day after he was well enough after chemotherapy. Public humiliation being perhaps a greater fear at that point than continuing chemotherapy. And he, when he walked in the room, he said, what shocked me and astounded me was that every man in that room was bald, my teacher, every classmate. And he asked what happened, and the kids all responded with the same thing. We'll be bald as long as you're bald. The entire classroom decided to shave their head. It's a small work of reconciliation or redemption, isn't it? No more than a couple sweeps of a razor, a little buzzing around the head. But... At that Christian school, a profound explanation and illustration of what the resurrection really demands. The demands and needs of the body are dignified. People who feel estranged are brought in. Those who are lowly are restored. And for Mark, at least, companionship along the journey. What happens when a new day begins? The world is renewed, relationships are restored, and history is reinterpreted in a powerful way. Part of what we celebrate here at Easter is that we finally have a way of understanding history. And the angels' words point us to it, and the disciples' response help us follow it. You see, at the time that Jesus was living, the Jews of the time could not make sense of their history at all. It made no sense to them. God was the only God in the world, why were we suffering the way that we are? If you look at our history from the time of the Exodus to the time that Jesus lived, it's one long series of failures and punishments with momentary bright spots. How can this be possibly true if Yahweh is the Lord? We had our glorious periods under David, though David's own failures and the punishments the people endured are pretty graphic. We had our years with bad kings and good kings. We had the experience of exile, and we read in the prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel that the exile would end. We'd be restored to our home. A king would be appointed us from the line of David, and he would reign forever and ever, and it hadn't happened. Instead, Israel became the doorstep and doorstop for empire after empire. And at this point, they're still living under the burden of Roman rule. They couldn't make sense of it. God's promises hadn't been fulfilled. And the disciples certainly couldn't make head or tail out of their own experience, their three or four years of history with Jesus. He had come promising to be the Messiah, the one who would usher in this new reign, the one who would bring prosperity and peace, freedom from Roman oppression. And instead, he dies in a way that only the Roman Empire could have done on a cross. And with faithfulness and with deep confusion, 
the woman come to the tomb? Worried, worn, confused, but trying to be faithful to what they know. And then these two beings appear, whose clothes glow in the light. And in their fright, the women bow down because they know something holy, something reverent, something powerful, something godlike is happening to them. And the men say, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. Remember what he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And their worry and their confusion and their doubt begins to evaporate. Hope begins to break forth. The dawn breaks into their darkness. And understanding begins to occur. You see, the work of redemption in history is best explained not by what we can see or particularly understand on our own. Our perspective is too limited, our experience too narrow. But all of history gets reinterpreted by Jesus. Remember what he told you, the angel said, and they remembered and then they understood. It's exactly what you see in Revelation 5 when the scroll is held by the one who sits on the throne and can't be opened until the Lamb of God has taken it. And all of a sudden, history begins to unfold in front of us, and God begins to make it clear. Jesus, his death and his resurrection are the access around which history turns, and everything in Israel's experience before can be explained by midst of it. That's why we read the New Testament in a way that nobody who is not a Christian can quite read it. Because we read it not merely as the historical experience of the people of Israel up until the time of Jesus, or at least 400 years before, but we read it seeing Jesus-shaped <coughs> pictures throughout. We see it as momentary experiences which point their way to a Savior which we've begun to know. Scripture then becomes central as you meditate on who Jesus is and what he said to us. And the future then gets rolled out in light of what Jesus has said and who he is. We believe because Jesus rose from the dead that the problem of evil actually has an answer and is, the answer is he who died on the cross on our place and in our behalf who's vindicated by his resurrection by God. We believe that the confusion that we experience in the world has a final focus and a solution in the person of Jesus. We believe, as I think Dick pointed out last week, that all of the unanswered questions will find their resolution in Jesus. Not simplicity, well, you know, you have a problem, pray, Jesus. But instead, out of a deep belief that the pain and evil in the world have been absorbed by God and that God is in the midst of transforming them that the focus of history will inevitably press into the future where one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's no doubt about who will triumph or win. That one day the glory and the, nation, the, glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into the kingdom of God and laid at the feet of Jesus. So nothing will be wasted in God's economy. And that one act of compassion or kindness 
Not one choice to pursue with excellence the jobs that he's given you, the relationships he's placed before you, or the stewardship of the land that he's put into your care. But all of that will be laid at his feet, validated and used to glorify God. So that our acts of worship began and end not here on a Sunday morning, whether it be Easter or not, but continue seven days a week, 24 hours a day with every moment and every breath that we take. That the very bodies that we are, not just that we inhabit, and all of their brokenness and frailty and limitation will be transformed, remade and renewed. And so we can cherish the bodies that we've given, been given, the relationships with which we've been entrusted, the hopes and aspirations to which we pray and dream. You see, because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we aren't an optimistic people. We are a hope-filled people. Because we've experienced our hope, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Death no longer has any fear for us. We know the end which we pursue. And it's glorious and beautiful. And it's Christ-shaped. You see, and this is why I love makeover shows, and I suspect you do too. I would never really want to compare Jesus to what not to wear. But I'm going to do so because I think those shows and those books and those magazine articles speak to a deep desire that we have. To know that no matter how drab, plain, broken, or painful the world may seem to us now, something can change in remarkably deep ways because the overall trajectory of those shows is people with doubt about who they are, what they have, and their significance in life are transformed by the end of that show because of a change in their external situation. And inevitably what you always hear them say in the last five minutes is, I actually believe in myself and my my, um, what I can accomplish a little bit more. I have a deeper sense of pride and a belief that I have value and worth in this world. If a small thing like a new house, a new set of clothes, or a new haircut can do that, how much more when all of creation is being made, every relationship is being renewed, and history is being reinterpreted around us? It's not just I have a little bit greater sense of dignity, a little bit more pride, and I'm convinced of my worth. But instead, God seems to say, by means of the resurrection story, this world matters to me, and I will make it new. You are incredibly important to me, and I will renew you and remake you until you are glorious and Christ-like in all of your attributes and being. I will interpret the world you have experienced so that it's coherent, sensible, and purposeful. Nothing will be wasted. Not one tear, not one laughter will go unrejoiced over. I am making all things new, and it begins with the resurrection at Easter. And this is good news that we bring to every community that we live in, to every workplace that we occupy, to every neighborhood we have the privilege of living in and into every relationship that we belong to. God is making all things new on Easter because it's the first day of a new creation. And that's good news for us, not just here on a Sunday morning, but in the ordinary drab lives that we seem to interpret. What we will do between now and the end of time is this. Jesus has already begun the process. We're going to live it out, work it out in every area of our lives, bit by small bit, never believing that we will accomplish it all on our own. 
but we've already seen what it's going to look like. And so we're going to live into it until Jesus completes the work that he began on that resurrection morning. And that's a task that's well worth rejoicing over as a church and as a people of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful for the folk who gathered here today because um, there's so many other choices we could make. Today's a beautiful day. We could be out in the park enjoying it with friends and family. We could be sleeping in. We could be enjoying a leisurely brunch with friends. But we've chosen um, out of faith to come here today to celebrate the fact that you began a new thing on Easter. Creation is being redeemed. Relationships are being restored. History is being rewritten. And so we accept your invitation to participate in that process. In the week ahead, make obvious to us, I pray, what small part of creation we could help redeem, what one relationship we could help restore, what little piece of history we could rewrite for the people around us. And then bring yourself glory and honor, we pray. For the sake of our Lord, who lived, who died, who rose again, who will return. Amen.